Hey, Crosswalk. How's the 12, a, uh, 12 p.m., right? 12 a.m., 12 p.m., 12 p.m. How you doing? Good? Man, it's good to see you. I've been gone for a couple of weeks, and it's good to be back. And uh, wow, what a worship. How oh, powerful. It's just, I've missed that. And man, really happy to be back uh, and glad to see you here. Thanks for coming or joining us online. Um, Pastor Tim's also been gone the, the last couple of weeks, and uh, he's actually this week in Chattanooga, where they're actually installing or introducing uh, their pastor this week. So that's a great time of celebration over there. We, we know that that's exciting, but Pastor Tim will be back next week, I, I think. Um, Maybe, I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, he's planning to be here next week and continue our series. So look forward to that. Hey, I want to just kick uh, into our message and uh, start looking at and start by looking at our text for today. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. And it says, now we see things imperfectly. In other words, these days, as we're living through our lives, we don't always see things clearly. We don't always see them completely. They're kind of like puzzling reflections in a mirror, or we look through a mirror dimly, other versions say. And the listeners of that time there in Corinth would have really connected with this because Corinth was known as the mirror capital of the world. They made the best mirrors uh, available in that time they were made out of bronze, if you can imagine that, right? So imagine looking at a bronze or a, bla- a brass plate and trying to see your reflection in there, right? You, can't, you can kind of see what you look like, but not very clearly, not very completely. And this is what he's addressing to them here in, the, in this uh, letter that he writes to them. He says, you know, now we don't always see things clearly. We don't always understand. There's coming a day where we will see things with perfect clarity, he says. There's a day coming but it's a journey to get there. And then he says, so at that point, remember that now all things that we see are partial, they're incomplete. We don't always have the full picture, but one day we will fully understand. We will fully know just as God knows us. And so as I was uh, thinking about this text, uh, I was thinking about the context of our series. We're in week two of Elemental, which is a series that's focusing on what's foundational to our faith. And at the core is the concept of deconstruction. Now, what is that, right? I mean, what does that mean? We've heard probably that term, but how does that apply uh, to us today? Well, if we were to apply that term as we are to the Christian faith, it's really about uh, defining deconstruction as a process. It's a process of examining ideas. It's a process about examining traditions or practices or beliefs that we have that define our faith. And the goal is to determine whether those things still are truthful for today, whether they're still useful, whether they still should have an impact in the way that we live our lives with God. And the way that uh, I want to kind of kick off illustrating it is it's like renovating an older house. Right? Sometimes when you renovate an older house, you remove or you add or you modify certain structural elements. And the goal is to make it more livable for those who live in the house now. Now, if you have any construction background or have any knowledge about how uh, houses or buildings are built, you know that there are some walls that are referred to as you know, weight-bearing walls. Those you don't want to remove. 
right? Or the house is going to come tumbling down or the building is going to fall. Uh, but that is part of the journey that we're on, is trying to determine, again, which walls are foundational and which walls maybe not so much. And that's part of the deconstructive process in determining what we're going to do with the walls that uh, we live with. And I love that metaphor of a wall. Uh, as a student of history, having a chance to travel in many places, I've always been intrigued by some of the great walls that exist on our planet. Um, they've been very important to those communities that have built those walls for different reasons. For instance, I've been to the Great Wall of China uh, and I've walked a part of the walls are reconstructed as well as the ones that haven't been reconstructed. Can you imagine building a wall that's over 13,000, uh, no, yeah, 13,000 miles? Uh, it's amazing. Uh, that wall, and I, I remember reading the history about it, that it was built by the people of that time to kind of create and protect their northern border. And it took a while to, uh, you know, be erected, but in the end, it provided protection. That wall's intent was to provide a way to defend from attacks from uh, those who were on the outside. So that was the purpose for that wall. I think about another one that I've had a chance to stand at, and that's the uh, Ber uh, Berlin Wall. It used to exist, but it came down in 1989, 1990. I was there with a chisel in hand, chopping away and getting pieces of that wall because it was a historical moment of that wall coming down. And uh, those pieces of that wall uh, still have a, a prominent place in my home in some box in, in the garage. Uh, <laughs> But they're important because they symbolize a whole different uh, kind of reason why the wall went up. That wall went up almost overnight. It was actually two walls with kind of a dead man's zone in between if people tried to get from one side to the other. But one morning, imagine it, people woke up and there was a wall separating uh, one part of the city from another. Families were separated depending on kind of where the wall came up. One were on one side, one were on the other. And so that wall created division. It created restriction. And those, that's a different purpose sometimes for walls. I think of the walls in scripture, right? One of the most famous is the wall in Jerusalem that's referred to as the Wailing Wall. And I've had the chance to go there several times and, and to see the mass of people who come and gather at that wall, which was initially or originally part of the Western Wall of the great temple of Jerusalem where people worshiped God in the Old Testament. Solomon built it, Herod the Great rebuilt it, and now all that is left is this Western or wailing wall. And uh, it was created for one thing, and now people worship it. People worship at it. Uh, instead of going to the temple to be in the presence of God, now the wall itself is an object of praise or an object of pride. And then there's Jericho. Jericho is still around and still recognized as probably the oldest city on the planet. It's on the West Bank, so Palestinian territory. It's a little bit of a challenge to get there. But I've had a chance to be there and to see the foundations 
of that wall that we read about in, in Scripture and that maybe we heard about when we were growing up, maybe in, in our children's classes. Some of you may remember it, right? The, the walls uh, came down. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, 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 and the walls came tumbling. Okay, I won't try to sing again, sorry. Uh, you know, but... You know, we know that song and we know that the walls came down. And in many instances, walls that were around are no longer there. See, walls have been built for different purposes. Some to protect, some to divide, uh, some to restrict. But they don't last forever. And they don't serve the same purpose forever. I want to suggest that it's the same for some of the, and I'll put quotes around it, some of the walls or pillars of our faith, which is why sometimes we have to deconstruct so that we can determine what's essential, what's foundational. One of the reasons that we need to enter into this process is that things change. And this happens all through scripture. This isn't something new or something that our generation is facing, but it's something that's been happening uh, ever since the beginning. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, prophets, Old Testament prophets uh, deconstructed the ways that, that Israel's life and worship had become uh, intermingled with pagan practices of their neighboring people groups that uh, were there. And the prophets are actually sent for a purpose of deconstruction. If you actually read all those kind of similar, small, kind of same message prophets that you find at the end of the Older Testament, you'll discover that the message is the same, that the prophets were sent to call people back, to reshape, to deconstruct, and then reconstruct a more faithful way of living with God. I think about the book of Job. The book of Job is essentially one long deconstruction of a misunderstood biblical view of God, which was, hey, if you're a good person, if you're pursuing God, then only good things will happen to you. That was Job's story. Uh, and, and we still kind of have that theology today. In many places, the expectation is if I pursue life with God, then everything's going to be good. I just need to pursue life with God. And in fact, some of the deviations of that is, Hey, if, I, if something bad happens, it's because maybe I did something wrong. And so this theology today is known as a prosperity theology, which says, hey, if you follow God, if you pursue God, then it's all going to be good. And the book of Job comes around and says, ah, ah, not necessarily, not necessarily. And then in the New Testament, Jesus comes and he continues this process of deconstruction. He, he says something like, or often says, hey, you have heard it said, right? But I say to you, what he was doing is he was deconstructing the standard interpretation of scripture of the day and reconstructing it in a more faithful way to interpret scripture and to pursue God. And then there's the book of Acts. The book of Acts, uh, there we read how the early church had to deconstruct the meaning and the purpose of circumcision. See, there was a lot of people coming in. The Holy Spirit was now inviting other people who the religious people of the day didn't think belonged on the inside. There were the Gentiles and the Jews thought, hey, it's only about us. God loves only us and only we are allowed inside. Only we will inherit the kingdom. And Jesus came and he said, ah, let me deconstruct that. And now you're going to have to figure out how to reshape 
and recreate the pillars that you've based faith on to include these which you thought should be on the outside, which can be a difficult thing, right? So in spite uh, of, of their challenge, Jesus challenges them to do that. So deconstruction uh, and really reconstruction is vital. It's a vital and necessary step in the ongoing formation of anybody who chooses to be a Christ follower. Right, if we choose to pursue God, we're going to be con uh, confronted with the idea of deconstruction. By the way, it's not a linear process. It's not a process that ends with a permanent uh, you know, reconstruction and then we're good. It's more like a cycle that we keep returning to uh, as we grow and as we learn. Uh, last week, Pastor uh, Karen uh, kind of uh, set the foundation by mentioning uh, a three-stage process that uh, this, this whole dynamic of faith journey uh, we need to go through or have gone through. Uh, it starts with construction, right? There's, uh, the construction is the building of one's faith. Uh, example, if you grew up in a Christian home, you were handed building blocks of faith and growth. You were handed building blocks that said, hey, you do this, but not this. You go here, you can't go here. I remember, at least in my generation, uh, being taught that the reason that I couldn't go to the movies was because if I went to the theater, then my guardian angel would not go in with me. Some of you may remember that, right? Guardian angel wouldn't go in. I thought, huh. And then uh, as I became a teenager, uh, my dad, who was a pastor, and uh, some other pastors in that town decided to have an evangelistic meeting, and they rented the theater. <laughs> and, and my dad said to me, you really need to go to that evangelistic series. You really need to come. I said, eh, can't. Angel won't come in with me. Right? It didn't make any sense at some point in the journey. I hadn't yet really understood fully what it meant that hey, it's really about what enters my mind, um, not so much the place that I go. And yet I had to go through a process of decon deconstruction, of understanding uh, kind of why. And, and that's what happens somewhere along the way, right? You realize that, hmm, that doesn't make sense. You realize that not everything is black or white. And you begin to discover that life Life includes a lot of gray. There's a lot of gray area that, uh, you know, we have to deal with and, and, uh, and we have a limited capacity really for the gray. Uh, we, we don't like to live in the gray. We rather know yes or no, what's, what's the answer here? Give me some boundaries clear and then I don't have to think about it. I'll just live that way. And yet, at some point, we realize that this idea that it's just good or bad actually doesn't exist as you get older. Doesn't exist. Every situation, you don't have a good choice or a bad choice. It's not about a good angel and a bad angel, you know, whispering in your ear. Another picture, you know, of the guy with the pitchfork whispering in one side and God on the other. It's not that simple, we discover. Uh, sometimes we're confronted with a bad decision and a worse decision. What do we do then? If our faith is only in the construction process, it's very hard to think gray. What do we do when we're faced with the reality that in this world, in our lives, sometimes we're faced with bad or with worse? 
Well, when you get to that point, it leads us to think and to realize that we need deconstruction. You begin to realize eh, it's not all black and white and it's not always just good or bad. And when you come to that point, you will either enter into a process of deconstruction or you will walk away. Because you're like, ah, that doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. So you either walk away or you enter into that process of like, okay, let me kind of see. Let me think. I remember the time when I realized that my faith uh, needed to be reassessed or reconstructed, that it had been affected by my upbringing. It had been affected by my, the traditions implemented uh, with right motivation, but implemented in, in my life. And uh, I realized that even my culture, my ethnicity, had uh, created certain ideas and constructed certain pillars. And I had to come to the place where I began to ask myself, is this biblical? Or is it just part of my tradition? Uh, is what I was handed good? Uh, is, it, is it true? Uh, or has it been corrupted by other kind of human factors? And when you enter into that place, uh, that's then that leads you to reconstruction, to the formation of a new paradigms, of new ways of thinking. And in this stage, we begin to rebuild our biblical worldview and we dis discover that the only way that we are going to rebuild our biblical worldview is to determine what is elemental, what is foundational, what are the weight-bearing walls. What happens oftentimes is that most people in church tend to be in stage one or stage two. Stage one says, hey, I was given this information uh, the Bible says it, I believe it. Uh, but at some point, we're confronted with something that pushes on that, and we begin to wrestle, and we begin to realize that in that worldview, there's no room for doubt. There's no room for questions. There's no room for different interpretations. And then doubt begins to creep into our minds, and, and the reality is that there's a very fine line between faith and doubt. Sometimes we think they're polar extremes, right? Faith over here, doubt over here. But a lot of things happen in our lives that bring that together, that brings that closer. And there's really a fine line there. You know, one of my favorite authors is a 19th century Russian novelist by the name of Fyodor Dostoevsky. And Dostoevsky has a lot to say on this topic. And he mentions this quote, uh, which I think illustrates where I'm trying to go. And that is, the death of a single infant calls into question the existence of God. And we're all being confronted with something like that, right? Something happens and it doesn't seem to fit our picture of God or the character of God that we have been taught that was constructed in our minds. And it leads to doubt and we wonder if we still have faith. And so this is part of that stage. We need to understand that uh, this is part of the journey. A person in that stage, stage one, often accepts ideas because others accept it. You kind of grow up and you're like, well, they accepted those closest to me, so I'm going to accept it. Or a person in this stage often um, just says, okay, um, you know, I, I've, I've learned this, I accept it because it fits kind of what I grew up with, with my stage one ideology or theology. 
And oftentimes, a person in this stage confuses the interpretation of the Bible with the Bible itself. And that leads to confusion. So in stage two, which is the deconstructive stage, you begin to discover that, wait a second, I'm going to have to explore um, what life with God looks like when I have to live in the grave. And the only way we discover the hard way sometimes to stay faithful is to understand what our motivation is. See, the motivation of fear or guilt, it doesn't last long. That motivation at some time will fail us. And so we have to discover what's going to be at the core, what's going to be elemental, what's going to drive uh, or set the stage for my house of faith. So a couple things to remember in this series as we continue to unpack this. One is deconstruction is not the end goal. If you end in deconstruction, you're going to miss it. So that's one. Two, deconstruction is complex. Not one size fits all. It's different for different people, right? We all kind of will experience it a little bit differently. <coughs> Excuse me. But most importantly, it's an access point <clears throat> to something new. What it does is it should drive us to ask the question, what is elemental? What is most important? Uh, and when we find ourselves there, then we begin to discover whether we're rooted in our faith or whether our faith is going to sink us at some point because it's not strong enough. Uh, the way that Jesus put it, <clears throat> is in Matthew 7 is, uh, and he was talking about construction, is your faith is either built on a rock or it's built on sand. You know, he, he said a house, but he's really he was talking about our lives and our faith. So either our faith is founded on mature belief, either our faith is founded on understanding of God's word, or it's not. And if it, if it is, you will withstand the challenges that come your way because you have understood that uh, the pillars that, of faith that you have are actually being a blessing. But if you're only located within Christianity because you grew up with it or it's what's been easiest to this point, as soon as something else becomes easier, your faith will crumble like a house in the sand. Now, our faith tradition has used these different terms. Settled truth present truth. Uh, and there are two terms that have been used for a long time. See, as a faith tradition, we say, hey, we're non-credal. We believe in something called progressive revelation. <clears throat> and if this is so, we have to ask ourselves the question, okay, what then is essential? Uh, what is non-negotiable? Because the truth is, everything can't have equal value. There has to be some things that are at the core there are only a few things that are going to be foundational. And so as we look at this, we have to understand this concept of progressive revelation. See, deconstruction says, hey, I don't know everything. Deconstruction says, man, I'm learning something new all the time. I didn't know that. And that changes kind of the, the, my viewpoint, even if it goes contrary to some of the things maybe that I learned. That's why we call it progressive revelation. Uh, it means there's more to be revealed. By the way, this is Adventist theology. This is not unfaithfulness. This is not heresy. As a faith tradition, 
uh, we've actually learned this the hard way. Uh, we started off wrong as a faith tradition. If you know our history, you know that we came out of a movement that had a whole different idea, a whole different constructed process of belief that led to what we refer to still today as a great disappointment. We came out of a great disappointment which led us to deconstruct and reconstruct. And in spite of that, we still, as a faith tradition, uh, we still struggle with this idea. So the idea of uh, settled truth uh, is, is one that still sticks with us uh, today. And we have a challenge in, in moving forward on that. See, here's the thing. Settled truth never changes. Subtle truth says, I believe this. I grew up with this. I'm hanging on to it for dear life. I'm going to clench my fingers around it until my knuckles get white and I'm not letting go. Right? We're going to hang on for dear life. Uh, present truth, though, is not static. It's a movement. That's why we call it progressive revelation. The problem is confronting this makes us uncomfortable because we question whether we're being faithful or not. But the reason that our faith tradition uh, preserves the deconstructive thought, it is so that we can get closer to the present truth, which is Jesus. A lot of faith traditions are, are, uh, faith traditions are creedal. They only want to preserve that which they already have. But present truth means focusing on what's elemental, saying, okay, there's a lot of stuff that I've grown up with, but what's at the core? What's foundational? What does it mean to be part of a movement that God has called us to? In the end, the Apostle Paul discovered it was all about a relationship with Jesus. He said, you know where you start, where you have to lay the foundation, you know what the non-bearing wall is? It's Jesus. In fact, he put it this way in 1 Corinthians. He said, hey, I know there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of pillars that you have established. There are these walls, and we're in the process of renovating this house of worship. But he says, in the end, what I've discovered is to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As I thought uh, about all those who have chosen that path over the centuries, uh, and I think back on history, and I love uh, history, I've, I've thought about all those who have basically given their lives for Christ. I, I think about throughout Europe and, and the, what they call the dark ages, those who have sacrificed and, and hung on to life with God in spite of the persecution. I had the chance to stand in the Colosseum in Rome, and uh, as I was standing there, the thought that came into my mind are all the martyrs that died there. And what came to my mind is, what were they thinking? You know, what were they thinking before they died? My guess is it wasn't theology. My guess is it wasn't 28 different beliefs. I think instead, what came into their mind was what they were dying for, what the, they were committing to, what they were committing their life to, Jesus. That's why the Apostle Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What's most important? What's elemental? Well, we get it straight from Scripture. And it's in our text. It's part of our text 
today. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the love chapter, right? It's often quoted at weddings. It's often part of marriage, counseling, conversations, and it's good for that. I'm not minimizing that, but it's actually part of a long thought by the Apostle Paul that starts in chapter 12 and ends in chapter 14. Now, there were no chapter divisions obviously when it was written, but that thought is that long. And he's really talking about the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. If you remember, <clears throat> during our Easter series, we talked about what Jesus said when he left, when he ascended into heaven, and he said, hey, I'm going to send you somebody to help you navigate uh, life with me. What it's going to look like. It's going to be the Holy Spirit, and he's going to be a counselor. He's going to help you through through this. And there are two primary ways in which he's going to manifest himself. One is gifts, what you do, the abilities you have, the talents that God has given you. And two is fruit, which is who you are. And chapter 13 is actually his strongest argument that who you are is more important than the gifts and abilities that you have. Who you are is more important than what you do. The fruit of the spirit, love, peace, joy, all the way to self-control is more important than the gifts or the things that we do for God. And in closing, I want to illustrate this for you because it's right here in the chapter, right in the middle of his long thought about what it means to live life with God, what our faith should look like. He says, look, if I speak in the tongues of men or angel, which is a, a gift, it's a spiritual gift, it's a manifestation from God, but it's a gift. And he says, if you have this gift, but don't have love, and love is fruit of the Spirit, he says, then you're really kind of an annoying, loud noise. Stop talking, because it's bad. If you can do something and do something for God, but if you don't have love, then it's really not worth much. And then he goes on and he, he, he kind of uh, jumps on this again. He says, if you have the gift of prophecy, uh, prophetic and preaching, if you can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge, and we all know people who have a lot of biblical knowledge, but it doesn't translate to the way that they treat people. You can have all knowledge. You can have faith, right? You can have faith as a gift, and that faith can be powerful. It can even move mountains. But if you don't have the fruit, if you don't have love, man, it's worth nothing. Then he says, if you give all that you possess, there's a spiritual gift of giving, a gift of generosity. God has given some the ability to earn lots of dollars. And the reason is so that they can support the work of God. God didn't say, hey, you deserve it more. It's, hey, you're in a place where you can bless God's work. And so if you have that gift, or even if you not only sacrifice your, your resources, but you sacrifice your body, the gift of martyrdom, right? And, and if you give that over, but if you don't have love, you gain nothing. It's really worthless. And then he goes into a description of love. He says, hey, love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud. He goes into this definitions, and again, this is the pure and full manifestation of love, right? We all fall short, I get that. But this is where he's driving us to. And he says, love, it doesn't dishonor others, it's not about me, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered. It doesn't keep record of wrongs. I don't, oh, I remember what you did to me six years ago. I'm going to get you, right? It doesn't do that kind of thing. Love doesn't delight in evil and headed down the wrong path. It rejoices with truth, which is centered on who Jesus is. And then he says, hey, it protects. 
It always trusts. It hopes. And it hangs on. It perseveres. And then, just in case they missed it or we miss it, he says, yeah, there's going to be prophecies, which is a gift. Those are going to cease. There's going to be tongues. Yeah, it's a gift. Those are going to be stilled. Yeah, there's going to be people who know a lot. There's a lot of knowledge. That's a gift. That's eh, going to pass away. He said, you're going to realize at one point that those are not mature, the full maturity of a walk with God. And the way that Paul puts it is, he says, look, when I was a child, I talked like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I, when I became mature, when I became a man or a woman, I changed. I put the ways of childhood, that kind of entry path into what it looks to be with God, trying to do it by behavior, but the gifts and talents and the actions that I do. And I realize that it's more about who I am and who I am becoming. And that's when he gets to the text that I started with. He says, see, now we're still struggling with that idea. We only see a reflection as in a mirror. In other words, we see a mirror dimly. We don't actually have a clear idea of what it completely means to pursue God. One day we'll fully understand because we're going to see face to face, which is the clearest way to understand who God is. In the meantime, now it's going to be a journey. But at one point, I will fully understand and be fully known. And then he says, all through that process, let me get to the core. He says, in the end, only three things remain. Faith, hang on, in spite of the gray. Hope, there's a day when all things will be set right. But the greatest of these, he says, is love. He says, love, that's the greatest. In the end, if you're going to set a firm foundation you're going to determine what is elemental. He says, it's love. Love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. It's a package deal, by the way. You don't love God, even though you might say you do, if you don't love people. And I'm not talking about the people who love you. The people who love you, we appreciate their good taste, right? I'm not talking about that group. I'm talking about the group that are difficult to love. And we may not agree with. And we may not want to embrace spiritually, emotionally, or physically. It's a package deal. This is the foundation. This is the pillar. Love God. Love people. Or as we like to say here, love well. Love well. That's the foundation. That's what's elemental. Let's pray. God, thank you for the reminder that we're on a journey. And we haven't arrived. That it's all part of a progressive process by which you grow us from where we construct our faith to this wrestling of deconstruction, to reconstructing it on that which is most centered on you, which is most foundational to what you want, which is elemental and important to our lives. May we see that clearly and we apply that to our lives. 
so that we can see you more and more clearly till we see you face to face. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please join us by standing.